Today, we face a threat America has never seen before. A former president who provoked a violent attack on this Capitol in an effort to steal the election. I'm David M. Drucker with The Washington Examiner, and welcome to another edition of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024, a ricochet podcast and a companion to my forthcoming book from 12 books, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP. On this episode, Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming. How upside down is Republican politics? How fascinating is Republican politics? If you would have told me even five years ago that Liz Cheney would become a Republican heretic, I wouldn't have been able to conjure the circumstances under which the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, a mainstream conservative with a super conservative voting record on the issues that matter, guns, abortion, taxes, energy issues, you name it, had become an outcast in her own party. But of course, I didn't account for Donald Trump. So here we are. Today, Liz Cheney is the leading Republican voice of the tiny Republican opposition to Trump, defeated in 2020, but still the undisputed leader of the GOP. And by the way, there's no love lost for Cheney on the part of the former president as has been abundantly clear for quite some time. Since Cheney is really outnumbered among Republicans in any event, perhaps her opposition wouldn't even merit a mention if she wasn't who she is. She's Liz Cheney, and I've been trying to talk to her about this for a long time because I think she is such an interesting figure. But still, Cheney's outspoken, uncompromising rejection of the 45th president for his handling of the post-election period for allegations that he fomented the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, sets her apart. And not just from Republicans who have hugged Trump even tighter since then. Not just from Republicans who are silently critical, but from Republicans who are critical, but who have declined to go nearly as far as Cheney in criticizing Trump and those elected Republicans who have stuck with him in declaring that he and they have disqualified themselves from American political leadership, never mind party leadership. And now, my conversation with Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney. Congresswoman Liz Cheney, thanks so much for joining me on In Trump's Shadow. Great to be with you, David. Thanks for having me. You got it. Uh, let me uh, jump right in with an easy one here. I, I wanted you to take me back to the moment that you concluded Donald Trump should be shunned and in no circumstances supported by the Republican Party. When exactly was that and what was going through your mind at the time? You know, it, it uh, was as I was being evacuated from the House chamber on January 6th. Um, and I had grown increasingly troubled by what he was doing post-election. Uh, he, he was exercising legitimate, his legitimate legal rights um, for several weeks. They were challenging um, what they, the Trump campaign thought was um, you know, fraud. Uh, they, were, they were doing what candidates have the right to do uh, in, in bringing these uh, suits in, in state and, and federal court in some instances. And, um, but as, as the weeks went by and as it became clear that the, the campaign 
was losing every single suit. And then um, as we got to December 14th and the electoral college met um, and uh, voted, that, that's the end of our process. Um, and, and I had grown increasingly concerned by watching the, the vast difference between the claims that some of the campaign lawyers were making publicly, um, which was to allege fraud that was on a scale that, that they said could have changed the outcome and, and what they were willing to argue in court, which was not fraud on that scale. And in many instances, they weren't even arguing fraud. And again, you had something like 62 um, judges, including some President Trump appointed, uh, say, no, rule against the campaign, rule against the president. And um, there was a lot of uh, allegation that, well, these, these courts hadn't actually heard the evidence. So I spent a good amount of time between Christmas and New Year's putting together um, a 20 page memo for my colleagues in the House conference, going through the key cases in each state, um, pulling out the key elements, the key aspects of the rulings in those cases, explaining what our constitutional obligation was. Um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very conservative and, and I believe that the constitution is, is very clear um, about what Congress's obligations are. So uh, in the lead up to the sixth, I was very, you know, it, it was clear to me that we did not have a role in objecting to the electoral votes. Uh, Congress isn't supposed to be objecting. It's wrong when the Democrats did it and it was wrong for Republicans to do it. Um, and so I, I, I knew that what was being proposed was, was extra constitutional. Um, but it wasn't until the attack on the 6th and until you know, it, it, it became clear the president, we now know, um, didn't send help. We knew at the time he didn't send help. Um, and to me, that was the line that can never be crossed. So it sounds like what you're saying is that January 6th, everything that happened that day was really the tipping point that notwithstanding everything the president was doing and the things he was saying leading up to the sixth, that if that insurrection, that riot had not occurred or, you know, had a majority of house Republicans not voted essentially to overturn the election, that whatever your misgivings about the former president are, you wouldn't necessarily be in this position. Well, I think the sixth was a key moment. I think his phone calls that have been reported on the fifth to, to the officials to pressure them. Um, you know, as I said, I grew increasingly concerned that he was just going to sort of try to barrel through the guardrails of our democracy. And, and then he did. Um, and, and so in my view, once you have a situation where the president, um, ignores the rule of law, where the president is willing to, to attempt to ignore the rulings of the courts, um, to, to, you know, provoke an attack on the Capitol, um, and to attempt to delay the counting of electoral votes. Those are really, really dangerous things that no president should ever do. And, and once we saw the, the extent of President Trump's willingness um, to take steps like that to try to stay in power, um, you know, that to me, there's just no way anybody who, who has done that, who has shown a willingness to do that, 
um, can can be trusted in power again. By the way, when you prepared that memo ahead of January 6th, and I, and I know at, at one point there was a conference call uh, with the House Republican Conference, um, and there were a few members that, that spoke out worried about the planned votes um, to block the certified Electoral College victory. Did you speak up in that call? Did Leader McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, um, admonish you at all to not be vocal about this? How, how were you interacting with him at that time? Well, we had a number of calls. Um, one of them at which uh, this the issue of whether we were going to object to the electoral votes or count the votes happened. It may have been on New Year's Day. I don't remember the exact date, but um, on one of the calls, I, I laid out the case. I explained why constitutionally um, Congress does not have the right to insert itself um, to change the outcome. You know, the Constitution is clear. And then, you know, the Electoral Count Act says if you have a slate of electors certified by a governor of a state, that's it. And we had 50 of those. So um, I did make the case that that this was very serious. It was probably, you know, the single most important vote any of us were going to take. Um, and that I, I did not believe that there was any constitutional basis for Congress to, um, to, to insert itself, to substitute our will for the will of, of the people that had been expressed through the vote by, of the Electoral College. Um, and I explained to my constituents, you know, I would never want a situation where Nancy Pelosi could say, you know what, it, I don't care that the people of Wyoming voted and that our three electoral votes are going to go for the Republican candidate. I, Nancy Pelosi, think that we should substitute the, the view of a democratically controlled Congress for the Republicans in Wyoming. That's not how the system works. That's not how we want the system to work. And so I did make a very clear statement about what I thought our duties were and, and our obligations under the Constitution. Um, and and I, I think Kevin spoke up and said, you know, that's not that's not a consolidated leadership view. Um, and, and there was some question about what his view was and what the other members of leadership were going to do. I think I was probably more, more clear and direct than, than others were on that point. Until earlier this year, uh, for a few years, you were the number three ranking House Republican leader, the House Republican Conference chairman. Um, number three ranking when the conferences in the minority, number four ranking when you guys are in the majority. The first time your your leadership post was on the rocks, you fought to retain it and leadership fought to retain you on the team. Then you, two things happened. When I talked to members at the time that grew weary of you, you know, they complained that it's fine for her to say what she says, but you know, why won't she keep quiet about it and focus on Joe Biden? But at the same time, what I noticed is when the vote came up the next time or as we were headed towards another confrontation, it seemed like you had made a decision that you no longer wanted to be in leadership. And I just wanted to ask you about that intervening period. You fought to retain this position um, and, it, and achieved that and achieved it quite well. 
but obviously something went on over the coming over the weeks that followed that one you refused to keep quiet about this particular topic and it didn't seem like you necessarily cared anymore about holding on to your leadership position given what would have been required for you to do that so what was the change in your frame of mind from when you fought successfully to hold your position and then let it go without a fight? Well, you know, I think that, that the first time this came up in February, um, I still was hopeful um, that even though um, we had disagreed about the certification, um, you know, that the, you know, impeachment vote had happened, um, that the Senate, you know, uh, had held its trial or was holding its trial, um, that we were, you know, in a position, I guess this, the, the Senate had, had finished the trial by that point, but that we were in a position where we really could be unified. And I, I think if you look at my remarks after that first vote, where we could be unified in going forward and defending, you know, my state, defending each of our districts against the really bad Biden policies. But the problem was that it became clear that the cost of staying in leadership was perpetuating the big lie. Um, and it happened a number of times, um, some of them publicly, where you know there was a question at one point about whether um, I believed it was appropriate for um, President Trump to be speaking at, at CPAC. Um, and I was very clear to me uh, this is about our oath and our duty. And, um, you know, I don't believe that he, he should have a role to play in the future. Um, you know, I think it, you know, it's clear I voted with him and his policies, something like 93% of the time. Um, I'm very conservative and I supported the vast majority of his policies. I think they were good policies, but there came a point where it was clear that, um, staying in leadership wasn't about conservatism and it wasn't about support for certain policy positions or for substance. It was about whether you were going to embrace Donald Trump. And I, I simply couldn't do that. Um, I think it's, it's very dangerous and it's wrong for the country. And I wasn't willing to lie. I wasn't willing to say the election was stolen. It wasn't. Um, that doesn't mean there wasn't fraud. It doesn't mean we don't need to look at ways we can help in every election to uh, diminish the amount of fraud, but there wasn't fraud that was on a scale that would have changed the outcome. And, and I think as elected leaders, we owe the American people the truth. So it, it became clear, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't willing to lie and that was what would be required to stay in leadership. I want to explore that a little more, but first, you know, what I wanted to ask you, and I've thought about this over the past couple of years when I've covered other Republicans who, ended up in your position one way or the other, but especially for you, not just because you're a Republican uh, and elected to office, but you're, you were weaned on Republican politics. I mean, your father was vice president of the United States, and I could go on and on about the rest of his resume. I mean, you lived this as a child, as a young adult, as an adult. Is it, I mean, do you sometimes feel like you're in this bizarro universe where you find yourself at odds with the leadership in your party on the Hill, the de facto leader of the party. Uh, I mean, that's just gotta be weird. 
You know, it's it's really sad, actually. Um, and, and it's sad because, number one, um, you know, growing up with the parents I grew up with, we were um, taught to love American history from an early age. We were we were taught, you know, what it means to revere the Constitution. Um, you know, we had at our dinner table, you know, examples of, of two people who served the country in elected office and my mom in a number of policy positions, um, you know, with, with honor. And um, so I assumed uh, that when, you know, the moment of testing came, I, I assumed that when, when sort of the chips were down, that people would do their duty. And, and that turned out to be rarer than it should be. Um, and so I think from that perspective, um, it, it's been disappointing and, and sad. Um, but I also, you know, I grew up in a Republican party and, and in a Republican household where we, we cared deeply about policy. We spent a lot of time, you know, uh, talking about policy and substance and, and, you know, why it's so important for, um, the government to be limited in size, why it's so important for people to, you know, be able to keep more of their own money, why it's so important for the United States to, to lead around the world. Um, you know, the, those policy issues are ones that the Republican Party has long stood for. And, and those are why I'm a Republican. And so to see the party move away from substance and, and, and embrace um, what, what is really a cult of personality. And look, it's a cult of personality around an individual who um, violated his oath of office by not sending help, um, but also who lost. You know, he lost the White House, he lost the House, he lost the Senate. So, you know, if you really are conservative and you care deeply about these policies and you want the party and the country to, to have leaders who are going to implement conservative policies, politically, it also doesn't make any sense for us to be tying ourselves to Donald Trump um, because, you know, he, he, he's a loser. And so I think that, um, you know, for, for both of those reasons, we're at a moment where I think that the party, because our policies are the right ones for the country, if we want to be in a position where, you know, we can, we can win elections and we can get voters back who lost us, we have to be very clear about the substance. Um, the other thing we have to do is um, make sure that people understand the deception that's gone on and that's still going on. People around this country, people who to this day, you know, fundraising emails go out um, from, you know, the Trump organization saying donate and we'll stop the steal. Um, there are hardworking Americans, millions of them all across the country who are being betrayed and deceived by the former president and his organization. And that's not right. Um, and, and I think that um, that goes back to how important the truth is and how people, we, we need to tell the truth. People need to understand what's going on. Why do you think the party, uh, and, I'm, and by party, I really mean voters in this case, because we could talk about the political calculations or concerns or fears of some of your colleagues in Congress, but Trump wouldn't have any power without voters, and he still has, as of this interview, a lot of support from Republican voters. 
how did the party end up in a place where this is what you're from your perspective, this is what you're dealing with? Well, it's a really it's a really important question. I think some of it is because the Democrats policies are so radical and um, they've been drugged so far to the left. And, um, you know, people people want um, somebody who is going to put in place, you know, talking about it from the perspective of Wyoming, um, the policies of the Trump administration with respect to oil and gas, with respect to coal, um, with respect to public lands, with respect to so many of the issues that matter to us were far, far better than, than the policies we're dealing with now. The Biden policies are really disastrous. And so I think, first of all, it, it was a reaction to really scary policies coming from the left. Um, and I think that, you know, again, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because elected Republicans who stand on the sidelines or who embrace the former president or who say, well, we're going to look the other way and we're going to ignore what happened or try to whitewash what happened after the election and on the sixth, all of those behaviors enable him. And, um, you know, if we're if we really believe in our oath and if we really believe our constituents deserve the truth, um, then, you know, we're obligated to tell the truth. And um, the more people stand on the sidelines silently, uh, the, the louder the, the Trump voice grows. And, um, and I, I just think that we have an obligation to make sure people understand what he did, um, to make sure people understand that there is, there's an alternative, you know, you don't have to choose socialism, which is what the Democrats are pushing right now. The choice isn't socialism or, um, you know, the, the, the attack on the Capitol. Um, the, the, there's gotta be a way for people to understand that, that you can have conservative policies, you can fight back against socialism um, and you can do it within the framework of the rule of law. Um, because if we go down the path of embracing a president who ignores the rule of law, um, then we really are beginning to unravel the foundations of the republic. In 2016 and 2020, you voted for Donald Trump because of his position on the issues. And if for no other reason that, especially when you're in party politics, presidential elections are binary, are binary choices. Right. So it's either even. For a lot of Republicans um, that I talked to in 2016 and 2020, it was either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Um, what I wanted to ask you is, in retrospect, given his given the president's apparent character flaws, at least many Republicans that were worried about him believed he had character flaws, and given his comments, even in 2016, but especially in 2020, that any election he lost would likely be illegitimate. In retrospect, should you have not voted for him in 2016 or in 2020? Well, I, you know, um, I was not ever going to vote for Hillary Clinton or for Joe Biden. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a conservative Republican. And, and I, I believed in the policies. Um, I think when you look back now, I think what happened partly was um, we ignored a lot of the warning signs, frankly. You know, um, 
when you when you look back after what happened on January 6th at President Trump's statements about, you know, we'll see if we have a peaceful transition of power. We'll see if I am going to respect the outcome of the election. All of those statements take on a very much more literal, um, you know, uh, perspective than before the sixth. And so, you know, I, I think we should have we should have believed him when he was saying those things. And people were sort of too quick to write it off, um, and and too quick to to coddle him, and too quick to um, you know sort of say, "Gosh, we're just gonna." you know, we'll look the other way for that because, um, you know, he can't really mean it, but, but we know now he did mean it. So I think the key is going forward. What do we do now that we know he meant it? So accordingly, what I wanted to ask you is if Donald Trump were to be the Republican nominee again in 2024, he has not ruled out running even, even though he polls below 50%, he still polls far above any other hypothetical candidate if he were the Republican nominee in 2024, and it's a binary choice, essentially, not that you have to vote for the Democrat specifically, but it's either him or the Democratic nominee, do you think that his candidacy, even as a general election Republican nominee, should be disqualifying based on recent history? Yes. And and I think we have an obligation to do everything possible to make sure he's not our nominee. Uh, it, it's, it is... Look, I've worked, David, in a lot of countries around the world where they don't have peaceful transitions of power, where they have authoritarian forms of government. Um, I've read a lot of history uh, about the rise of authoritarianism um, and, and the danger and the threat that he presents is very, very real. Uh, and I think people need to recognize um, this isn't, it's not sort of a choice about policy, um, we need to be in a position where we can we can have a Republican Party that defends and advocates for the right policies that does not embrace, um, you know, a, a president who attempted to do everything he could to stay in office, um, including, you know, pressuring local government officials. We've heard the recordings of those phone calls, um, refusing to accept the Electoral College votes after they had voted um, and, and of course, what happened on the 6th. And so do you believe that specific and clear outspoken denunciation of what you refer to as the big lie, the claim that the 2020 election was stolen, should be a prerequisite, if it were up to you, a prerequisite for serving as a Republican leader in Congress or becoming the Republican presidential nominee in 2024? Yes, I do. Um, I think that there's just no there, people. There, there's no choice. You know, you have to tell the truth um, about this election. Um, I also think that people who um, sort of uh, toyed with the idea that you could, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Ted Cruz, for example, and his proposal that that you could have a commission and that you could delay the electoral vote count in the House and um, you know, Josh Hawley and others, people who um, entertained the idea that that you could unconstitutionally delay the count of the electoral vote, um, object to the votes. Uh, I think those those behaviors are disqualifying. Um, I, I think that what we saw, you know, the thing about the example of President Trump and his post-election behavior 
is it was a very clear lesson for every American that it doesn't really matter. Uh, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. You can have in place as many regulations and laws that, that you can think of. But if you have somebody in that office who doesn't believe in the rule of law and who puts his own desire for power first, then, um, then the Republic is in danger. And so people who are willing to entertain that, I think it raises real questions about their fitness for office as well. I wanted to talk to you about a different kind of Republican, uh, Republican sort of in between you and Republicans that are with Trump on this issue. I've talked to a lot of Republicans, including some of your colleagues who will tell me off the record privately, no, the election wasn't stolen. Yeah, you know, I, I wish he'd stop doing this, but at the end of the day, it's not going to do me any good to speak up. I'll get some voters angry at me. Trump will just see what I said, and he'll decide to say what he says even more. And they don't think ultimately that he's a danger to the republic, that, yeah, he did this, but see, everything was fine. And all we have to do is focus on 2022, and everything is back to normal. Why are they wrong? Where are they wrong? Well, in, in a couple of places, one, silence enables the liar. And so, you know, you, you have a situation where you have people across the country who could be thinking, gosh, Joe Biden's policies are so bad. Maybe I will, you know, support Trump in 24, even though he's done all of these things, they'll, you know, people will think, well, it couldn't be so bad or you'd have more Republicans speaking out. Um, We've we've watched. I mean, I think that you have some Republicans, obviously, who are embracing him, um, but you have a, a lot of elected officials who are just, you know, taking the perspective and the view that you just laid out and and being silent. But we've been doing that now. Most of the Republicans have been doing that for nine months, and it's not working. Um, his his claims about the election continue. He's now started down this path of praising the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th, um, of, of criticizing law enforcement officers who protected us, who protected the Capitol, who protected the Constitution, of attacking directly the elected officials who stood up to his pressure. I mean, th this is an authoritarian, it's an authoritarian playbook. And, um, you know, you, you can just watch it unfold. And so my... Um, my view of my oath and my view of, frankly, the responsibility of every elected official is you, you can't be a bystander. You know, when when some a threat that's this significant presents itself, you cannot be a bystander um, that, you know, silence is acquiescence and silence in the face of the big lie perpetuates the big lie. So we, we need elected officials to speak out. We need media organizations to speak out. Um, you know, we, we need entities like Fox News um, to be very clear that the election was not stolen. You know, people people watch and listen and believe what they're told. Um, and um, right now, there there are too many people who believe the lie that that President Trump is pushing. Other than than the former president, the, the only other person I've heard you be repeatedly critical of is. Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader. Um, I, obviously, the two of you have had your differences, but I can tell that you 
appear to be very disappointed in in this particular aspect of his leadership. What really gets you in terms of how he's handled this that has so disappointed you and, and left you unhappy with how he handled things? Well, look, I think his decision to go to Mar-a-Lago, um, the first the first to do that, um, you know, he was really clear um, on the 6th and on the 13th about what had happened. He was clear in his remarks on the floor on January 13th um, when he said the president bore responsibility for what happened on the 6th. Um, but um, something shifted with him, something happened to uh, cause him to shift his approach, to cause him to decide to embrace Donald Trump. And um, I think that when you are the Republican leader, you have a particular duty and responsibility. Um, he, he would like to be the Speaker of the House. That's the second in line to the presidency. And that requires a seriousness and a competence and a commitment to your oath. And um, what we've seen instead, unfortunately, um, is, you know, embracing the former president who is so dangerous, inviting him now to, to speak at, at one of our, you know, big NRCC events coming up in the next couple of months, um, to whitewash the events of that day. Uh, he, he, you know, has been asked in a number of occasions, uh, whether he still believes the president bears responsibility for that day and, and he won't say anymore. Um, I mean, it's just a real abdication of duty and an abdication of responsibility. And when you're in a position of leadership, um, it's very dangerous to, to go down that path. Of course, he probably would have ended up just like you, right? I mean, not no longer in a position of leadership. I, I can't imagine. Or, or do you think that if he had been consistent, that he would have had more sway with members, let's say, than you had? You know, look, I think that that there was a clear moment after January 6th. Um, where we really should have as a party in a very united and unified way said, that's it. You know, we, we are not, we are not going to embrace the policies of Joe Biden and the Democrats. We're going to fight for conservative principles and leadership, but somebody who would do what Donald Trump did cannot be the leader of that. Um, and, and there was a real moment when we could have done that. Uh, and, and unfortunately that's not the path people chose, but, it comes back to leadership. You know, are, are you going to do what's right and lead and obey your oath um, and put that above politics? Or are you going to put your finger in the wind and try to, you know, claim that, you know, I, I don't know, try to whitewash what happened that day. Um, and I, I think, as I said, I just think that's an abdication of leadership at a moment when, when we needed leadership most. Your party is in a good position to win back the House majority in 2022. So I, I wanted to ask you this question. If your party is in the majority in early January of 2025 and Kevin McCarthy is the speaker and the Democratic nominee, whether it's President Biden or somebody else, wins the election again and in particular beats Trump again, do you have confidence that such a House majority would vote to certify the electoral college victory of the democratic nominee? Uh, well, that's a lot of hypotheticals, David. Um, I think but we're just, we're just talking, right? So you know, I was trying to follow all those hypotheticals. Look, um, I think what, what we've seen um, demonstrates that we need 
um, we need a, a lot of things. One thing we need is a constitutional boot camp for members of Congress. Um, we, we need members of Congress to spend some time, both parties, to spend some time looking at, thinking about, learning, understanding what our obligations are um, under the Constitution. Um, we need to understand that we can't play games with that. We can't placate, you know, a president whose who's desire for power outweighs his dedication to our founding documents. There was a lot of placating that went on and is still going on. And, and people need to understand the consequences of that. Um, so I, um, I think we need serious people. We need serious leaders, serious leadership and um, embracing the former president in the aftermath of what happened doesn't, doesn't meet that requirement. For what it's worth, Chris Christie told me recently that he thinks a majority of your colleagues voted to uh, block the election because they knew they couldn't actually block it. That if you have the majority, they'll do the responsible constitutional thing because they would actually have it in their power to not do that. I, uh, I think that what January 6th taught all of us should, the lesson we all should learn from it is the unimaginable becomes real very quickly. And that you, you need to judge people based on their past behavior and that you can't be in a position where you're sort of hoping that people will suddenly embrace the constitution um, if they abandoned it uh, after a provocation on the Capitol. And finally, um, as we get toward the end here, I wanted to talk to you about your reelection bid. Um, it's a tall order. I'm just going to set this up for the audience in case they're not aware. It's not that you're in a red state. You're in a state that voted twice, almost 70% for Donald Trump. I mean, Wyoming's always been conservative territory, but 70% is pretty good. It was just, just under 69 and change. And, you know, the president, the former president's on a mission to defeat you. And now he has a, an endorsed candidate, Harriet Hageman. Uh, how do you win this thing, given the grassroots is still very much enamored of the 45th president and um, that on the issue that seems to matter most, whether or not you're loyal to him, you're not. Uh, a couple of ways. One is um, the way that, that I have always campaigned in Wyoming, which is talking to my constituents, you know, face-to-face, person-to-person, individually in small meetings um, all across the state, um, answering questions, getting their input, talking about the issues that really matter to us from a state perspective in terms of, you know, our key industries and the regulatory structure and, and federal lands policy and, um, and the ag industry, those things that matter to Wyoming, um, those are things that will continue to be at the heart of, of, uh, of my reelection race. Um, but, but absolutely, absolutely, the question will be, will be put, which is, you know, do you want somebody who's loyal to, to Donald Trump or do you want somebody who's loyal to the Constitution? You, you can't be both pro-Trump and pro-Constitution. And you also can't be in a position where, um, you know, you, you have pledged your loyalty to one man. Um, and, and that's certainly what, you know, my opponent has done. Um, that's fundamentally antithetical to the rule of law and to the Constitution. 
And, and at the end of the day, um, you know, the voters of Wyoming um, understand that, you know, we are very much gonna be uh, a, a focus of attention for, for the country. Um, and that, that in addition to the traditional issues in a house race, we are gonna have this issue about the constitution. And, and, and the real question is also, you, know, you don't get to apply the constitution and abide by the constitution only when it leads to a political outcome you desire. You know, that defeats the entire purpose of the structure of our Republican government. And um, you, you have to have elected officials who are gonna abide by the constitution, um, you know, even if it le leads to a political outcome that they don't like, that's, that's the only way the system survives. So that will be a question that the voters of Wyoming will have a chance to to cast a vote on. Um, and I, I look forward very much to having that debate all, all across the state you know, between now and our primary. Look, I'm all in favor of it because I have an excuse to go to Wyoming now. And, and so <laughs> I, I'm right. a big fan of this whole development, <laughs> even though it's probably a little bit difficult for you. So I apologize for that. Uh, look, I just wanted to ask you um, in regard to that, you know, if you were to win this race, it would probably say a lot about Trump's pull within the party and and the fact that you were able to at least hold your ground on an argument like this. By the same token, if you lose, then people are going to say, look, this is what happens when you oppose Trump. And this is what happens when you make this argument. The voters weren't interested. Um, do you feel like there is a lot riding on your race, given how it will play either way? Um, look, I know that there, there's a lot of focus on my race. I also know that, um, you know, everything that I've done, um, uh, has been a decision based on, on what I believe my oath compels me to do and, and on principle. And, um, you know, that, that, that's just how you have to operate, uh, you know, which is to do the next, the next right thing. And, um, at every moment, um, you know, it, it has been clear what the right thing to do is. And I think it's clear to, to you know, many people who aren't doing it. Um, but, but you can't put that political calculation, you can't let that, that factor in when you're dealing with something that is so consequential um, for the future, for the country. Um, and I, as I said, I, I, um, I, I know beyond a doubt that he is very dangerous to our Republican form of government and that, that it's really important for us to make sure that he doesn't, that he's not in a position again um, to be able to, uh, to ignore the rulings of the courts, to ignore the constitution. Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, thanks so much for joining us on In Trump's Shadow. Thanks, great to be with you, David. Brian Johnson is the producer of this episode of In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024. My book, In Trump's Shadow, The Battle for 2024 and the Future of the GOP, publishes October 19th and is available for pre-order. On a daily basis, you can catch my work online at www.washingtonexaminer.com.